let me ask you a question. What is God doing right now in your life? What is he up to right now? Some of you guys know I have a mentor in my life. Um, his name's Gary. Gary and I talk every couple weeks. And Gary made a promise to me years ago when we started this relationship. He said, every time we talk, I'm going to ask you what God is up to in your life. And uh, I said, okay, great. And then after a while, every time I talk to him now, I'm like, please don't ask me that. Please don't ask me that. Um, and the answer, the reason is because sometimes it's hard to come up with an answer for that question, right? Because we're so busy in the day-to-day of our lives that oftentimes we're kind of oblivious to what God is doing and, and where he's moving and what he's up to. In fact, here's what I'm pretty sure of. If you just ask most people, or even me on a lot of days, what is God up to and doing in your life? I think the answers tend to fall into two categories. One would be, I'm not sure. Or the second, this would be based on what's happening in your life, the second would be nothing. I don't think he's doing anything in my life. And I think those answers come out that way because when things are going well, we tend to attribute things in our lives that are going well to randomness, luck, fortune, or maybe, you know, our own planning and diligence. And when things are going bad, we have no problem with blaming God for that. Um, You know, well, he's up to nothing because all these problems uh, exist in my life. I think when things get tough in our lives, we start to think, well, you know, everybody always said that God is sovereign. And what that means is that God has everything under his control. Well, if that's true and God is sovereign, if he has everything under his control, then he's either impotent or he's uninvolved because things in my life are out of control. Enter this incredible story of a one woman named Ruth. This is a really tiny little book in the center of the Old Testament, if you've got your Bible with you. It's only four chapters. You could read it in ten minutes. But it is just packed. I mean, uh, it is just packed with truths about God. And I think we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks. If you would just, I mean, just read this over the next couple of weeks. You could read it over breakfast or, I mean, it's just, I think it'll help you answer the question and see what God is up to in your lives, in the good days and in the bad days. Now, here, there's a lot of themes in Ruth. We're only going to look at two. One this week. This week, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God, how he's working in your life. And next week, we're going to talk about a different issue. And then two weeks from today, which will be the third week, Juliet Trafton, who is an accomplished Broadway actress, is going to come out here, and she's going to perform the entire book of Ruth right here in the service. Um, that's going to be free. We encourage you to bring a friend out to that. Um, it's just going to be awesome, and, and she's going to bring the book to life. Uh, so that'll be great, and uh, then it really will be time for Christmas, but we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Okay, so Let's back up to go forward. If you've been part of uh, what we've been up to here, we just finished a seven-week look at the great singular commandment of Jesus that underlies his new covenant, the new promise that God, that through Christ, um, God gave us a, a, a promise that we can enjoy in our relationship with God by faith in his life, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And underpinning this new way to God, not by the law and obedience, but by faith in Jesus, underpinning it, Jesus takes all of the 600 plus commands and and says, really, there's just one, love God and love each other and everything else will kind of fall into place if you get that right. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to go back about 1100 years. 
before Jesus, before he comes on the scene. Because his people are living in, in, in under the old covenant, what is sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, the laws that God gave Moses. Some of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. That was the beginning of them, right? But then over time, more got added. And, and that covenant that, that Israel was living under at the time, not a new covenant of faith with an obedient, with, with, a law, with love governing it. This was a covenant that was given by God with a distinct purpose, Lots of laws, Israel was to obey them, and if they did, they'd be blessed. If they didn't, they wouldn't, because God was trying to set up a nation, and that nation was going to go on to be a blessing to the whole world, and it would eventually produce, the promise was that it would eventually produce a Messiah. Now, some of you know, God gives Moses these Ten Commandments, and over time, hundreds are added, and the purpose of a lot of these commands was to keep Israel as a distinct nation, separate and apart from all of the other nations that surrounded it. But Israel, just like you and I do, instead of looking up and trusting God, what Israel did was it looked around at all of the other nations and said, you know what, they seem to be prospering a little bit more than we are. I think I'd like to be like them. And one particular way they decided they wanted to be like the nations around them was that they decided they didn't want to be ruled by God through a relationship with them. They wanted a king. They wanted the laws and the authority and the structures of man, not a relationship depending on trust with God. Now, this story of Israel's, uh, of Israel's back and forth with God in a sense of, of trying to obey him and then deciding not to obey him and then getting themselves in trouble, it kind of culminates in an Old Testament book called Judges. Now, this book, Judges, it, it kind of chronicles one of the darkest points in Israel's history. Their constant walking away from the laws and the commands, the horrible judgments and troubles they find themselves under and in. And in this book, every time Israel walks away from God and finds itself at rock bottom, it cries out to God. And God answers and bails them out again and again and again. I had a friend who says that he came to, to be a believer in Jesus by reading Judges. And I said, how? And he said, because I just couldn't believe God would just keep coming back and answering their prayers. Well, here's why. Because God had made a promise to use Israel to bless the world. And God was going to stay true to the promise. God had a plan. And God was going to use that plan constantly at work in the plan. And he was going to, to bring it to fruition if Israel participated or wanted to participate or not. Now, it reminds me of a saying I heard this week. And this saying, understanding it right, really underlies this whole story. You know how people say all the time that God has a wonderful plan for your life? And I think there's some truth there. But there's a bigger truth. I heard somebody put it this way. He said, God has a wonderful plan. So you should give him your life. God is up to something spectacular, incredible, unbelievable. And you should probably get involved in it. Because that's where the, the, the blessing and the flow of God's spirit is. Not in our plans, but in his. Now the context of this little story I'm going to tell you this morning about this woman, Ruth. The context of it is actually framed by the last sentence in this book of Judges. Because the book of Judges comes right before Ruth in the Old Testament. And here's the, the last line in that book, at the end of that book chronicling this dark period. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
In those days, kind of like these days, the saying had become, you know what? You should really be able to do whatever you want. You do what you want. I'll do what I want. As long as we don't hurt anybody, that's just the way it'll be. You do what you want, I'll do you, do you, I'll do me. But yet, even in this dark period where everybody's turned to their own ways, I think what you're going to see this morning is God is working on something. He, he's got a plan, and even though Israel right at the moment seems not uninterested, God is still at work. So let's jump into the story. Ruth, little book in the middle of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. So here's Israel, right? Right in the middle of that period that we just talked about. Judges weren't like legal judges. They were kind of like regional leaders in Israel. In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, same Bethlehem where Jesus is born, right? So, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, I want you to understand something about this book. This is an incredible work of art and literature. It's been called, quote, the loveliest, most complete work ever on a small scale. What Venus is to st uh, statuary and Mona Lisa is to paintings, Ruth is to literature. And thus, it contains lots of literary elements, which we're gonna I'm going to show you this morning, including lots of ironies. For example, this man and his wife are living in Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem translates as, what it means? Bethlehem means house of bread. So it's interesting right out of the gate, in line one, literally there is a famine in the house of bread. And this man picks up his wife and his two sons, and they head to Moab. Now, this man's name was Elimelech. Now, if you're like me, you don't like Old Testament names. You just skip over them, right? We just move right along, and I like to do the same thing, except I have to get up here and talk to you about them sometimes. So I try to, uh, you know, incorporate into my mind little sayings, little things that will help me remember how to pronounce it. So every time uh, I think about Elimelech, now I stumbled upon this, this stupid video comes to my mind, and I figured I'd show it to you, because what the heck. Now here it comes, listen for it. All right. I don't know why I just felt the need to show all of you that because it's stuck in my head and now it can be stuck in yours. So Elimelech, 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 his name had a meaning. Here's what it meant. Elimelech means my God is my king. Oh, that's a good name. But there's an irony there, too, because this man who says that my God is my king, instead of trusting God for food in the house of bread, what he decides to do is to trust himself. And he does just like had been happening in the days of the judges, because this happened during the days of the judges. He does what's right in his own eyes. Instead of maybe wondering why there's a famine in the land, maybe it's because, once again, we've walked away from God and we're seeing what happens when we operate outside of what he's doing. Instead of maybe repenting and turning back to God, Elimelech, what he decides he's going to do is he's going to go to Moab. 
Because that seems right in his own eyes, but it is wrong in the eyes of God. Because Moab is one of Israel's perennial enemies. In fact, during this period of the judges, Moab had been an oppressor of Israel's. It was a nation, if you know any of the history, you can check this out in the first book in the Bible. It talks about this. It it was a nation that was founded when Lot fathered Moab by an incestuous union with his oldest daughter. In Moab, they worshipped a pagan god named Chemosh. It was a very dark place. There was a lot of child sacrifice there. It was even common. This was not a place for a man of God. But at the moment, it sure seemed right in his eyes. Now, his wife's name was Naomi. His wife's name, Naomi, that translates to Naomi means pleasantness. Gentlemen, who is married to someone who basically should just be called pleasantness? Anyone other than me? Oh, my gosh, you're all dead. Like, I don't even know how you're going home this afternoon. He's married to pleasantness. And the names of his sons, right, were Malon and Kilon, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Catch this now. They lived there. They didn't just go there on a pit stop or, you know, as a drive-through. They lived there. They settled down. So the story goes on. Now, Elimelech, it just happens. All of a sudden, he just starts. I work hard on these things. I want you to know that. Now, Elimelech, you'll never be able to read that again without that going on in your mind. You can thank me for it. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. It's a quick-moving story, right? Elimelech dies. Now, it's kind of ironic. He left um, Bethlehem, the house of bread, to, to find bread, and he left, uh, he left Israel to live, and he goes to Moab, but he dies. And she's left with her two sons. They marry Moabite women. One was named not Oprah, but Orpah. See, now you'll be tripping over that one too. Um, they married, this is what goes through my head, not Orpah, or not Oprah, but Orpah. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. They married, see, they settled in. They married Moabite women. And marrying a Moabite woman is strictly prohibited by God. Check this out in Deuteronomy. They would have known this. This was one of the laws that they lived under. It says, No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of their descendants, may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in their t- the tenth generation. And then it gets even specific. No Ammonite or Moabite. No Moabite or any of their descendants can enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. Now, this isn't because, as some people have used this, this is not because God is opposed to interracial marriage. God is not. But what God was up to at the time was trying to preserve Israel to keep it distinct from other nations and other cultures. And what happens is, when you marry into another culture, you get that culture's gods. But they, you know, they had settled in and they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. I mean, when in Moab... Well, the scripture continues. After they had lived there about 10 years, Malon and Kilion, they die. And Naomi is left without her two sons and without her husband. No family, no men, no heirs, nobody to protect her, nobody to provide for her. She finds herself in an enemy land all alone. And after some amount of time, 
She decides, and she also hears, if you read this story, you'll hear she hears that the famine is broken back home. She decides she's going to leave and go back to Bethlehem. So as she leaves, her two daughter-in-laws cling to her and say, we're going to come with you. We, we, we've lost both of our husbands. We'll go back with you. And Ruth says, no, 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 don't do that. If you come back with me, there's nothing for you in Israel. There's no way there's going to be any more sons of mine. I've already lost my husband. There's going to be no other sons for you to marry there. And when you go back, you're going to be a foreigner in a land that detests you. And nobody back there is going to be allowed to marry you. There's nothing for you there. You've got to stay here. Well, they continue to try to insist and come along with Ruth. Ruth eventually looks at them and she says this. No. She goes, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned against me. I mean, look at my life. I mean, who could blame her, right? She's saying to them, look, the Lord has turned against me. I've lost everything. If you come with me, it's not like God is going to, is blessing me and is going to help you out. Stay here, it'll be better. It'll be more prosperous. You could find a husband. And so Orpah listens to her mother-in-law. This makes perfect sense. It seems right to her for her own prospects, for a future. They're much better in Moab. And so Orpah listens and turns back. But not Ruth. Ruth does what seems to be wrong in the eyes of most, and she makes a dangerous choice in ancient times to go be an unmarried widower in a far, or a widowess in a foreign land. And she recommits herself to her mother-in-law with maybe one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. I conclude almost every wedding I do with this promise that Ruth makes to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Really profound. And Naomi concedes. Off they go on probably a week, week and a half's journey back to Bethlehem. And they make it. They survive it. And when they get into town, it turns out that people know Naomi. Elimelech must have been a man of some means. And so people on the street start to recognize her. Now it's been 10 years. And so people start to murmur, I think that's Naomi. Do you see that woman over there? She looks a lot like Naomi. I wonder if it's Naomi. And so the gossip and the innuendo begin. And eventually somebody confronts Naomi. And they come to her house and they say, well, you're back? And here's what she said. She goes, don't, don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara, which translates bitter. Gentlemen, anybody married to a bitter person this morning? Just kidding. <laughs> she goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I'm bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. I mean, who could blame her? Naomi, like most of Israel in her time and most of us in our lives, when things aren't going the way we want, we just assume that God has done this. God doesn't care. God has left me alone. I guess I must have done something wrong. God is disinterested in me. He has abandoned me. 
She doesn't think he's got any kind of plan at work. Let, yet, we are 3,500 years from when Naomi lived, and you and I are sitting here in Mendham, New Jersey, in a world she never would even have known existed, and you know her name. Because in that moment, when it seemed like God had forgotten her, that God didn't care about her, what Naomi didn't know was that she was not only in the center of God's will, but she was at the epicenter of history. She just didn't feel it. She just didn't see it. Back to the story. It continues. And so now they're back into town. And it's the beginning of, of barley season. In barley season, what would happen is landowners would send their workers into the fields to harvest the barley. It would last for, for I think, eight, ten weeks. And what would happen during that season is there was a law in the law of Moses, and it stipulated that the corners of the fields needed to be left unharvested and that you could only harvest your field one time. Anything you missed, anything that you dropped on your way back, you couldn't go back for it, you couldn't take another shot at it, you just had to leave it because it was to be there for the poor and the widows and the orphans. This way they would be able to come into the fields, and, and they used the word glean. They would glean your fields. It was God's provision for the poor and the broken and the marginalized. It was kind of like a social program almost of the day. So Naomi, now she wouldn't know anything of this. She's a Mo, excuse me, Ruth doesn't know any of this. She's a Moabite. So Naomi informs her and says, look, I am too old to go out and carry all the barley back. But you should go out and find a field and glean it for us. And so Ruth goes out and she finds herself in a, apparently a random field. This is a very dangerous time for this young woman. She's single. She's out in the field by herself in the middle of a male-dominated culture. Not just that, she's a foreign woman. Even worse than that, she's a Moabite woman. But I mean, she has no choice. This is the, the hand that apparently fate has dealt her. She winds up in a field of a man whose name is Boaz. We later find out in the story that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband who had died. So Boaz comes to the field one day, and he sees amongst all of these old Israelite women, one young Moabite woman. And he says to the overseers of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? So here's what I did. I went back and I looked at the original Hebrew here to try to understand what Boab's question was. And it translates this way, hey, who's the hot chick? <laughs> right? I mean, there's a bunch of old, old women out there. And who's, who's, who's the hot girl? And so his servants have an immediate answer for him because Ruth's reputation has gone around a little bit. I mean, she's a Moabite in town. People were going to be talking. And so they said, this is Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And they told him what Ruth had chosen to do, that she chose not, even though it would have seemed right in, in her own eyes, she chose not to abandon Naomi, but instead to follow her at great cost all the way back to Israel. To not abandon her. So Boaz is so impressed. In fact, he's so moved by the story. He goes to Ruth, and, and, and the story picks up. He says, look, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your household, and you came to live here with a people you don't even know? 
And then Boaz, you know, what would have seemed right in many powerful men's eyes, they could have done a lot of things with her. But Boaz, instead of taking advantage of the situation, instead he pronounces this blessing. He says, I want the Lord to repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, the very God who Naomi thought had abandoned her, under whose wings that you have now come to take refuge. And he doesn't just pray it. In fact, what he does is he gathers up the other workers and he says to them, listen, the new hot girl, don't bother her. I know what you're thinking. Keep your hands off her. Don't oppress her. Don't abuse her. She's not... She's, she's a woman of honor. She's not merely some foreigner that stumbled in here. You treat her with respect. In fact, he says, you go out of your way to help her in her gleaning. And as a result, her gleaning business goes through the roof. Day after day, she's bringing home all of this barley. And eventually, Naomi starts to look around and go, uh, how are you doing this? Like, where is this, all this coming from? So Ruth starts to tell her. She goes, well, let me explain. I went out in the field. I just found a field walking down the street one day. And uh, it turns out there's a guy named Boaz that owns the field. And Naomi, as soon as she hears the name, she stops Ruth and goes, Boaz, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. I'm going to stop the story. We're going to talk about this next week, this concept of guardian redeemer. But let me just briefly explain it. Under the laws in Israel, there's a principle called either kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. And this redeemer is the male relative who has the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who's in trouble or danger or need. The Hebrew term means one who delivers or rescues or redeems the property of a person. So say, for example, if you own something and had gotten in a hawk and you needed it back, you could go to your kinsman redeemer. And he, and, and he would bail you out. You'd find yourself in trouble, he would bail you out. Sold your kin into slavery, he would buy him back. In fact, there was one other responsibility, which was if there was no male heir for the family, the kinsman redeemer could step in and provide, if you know what I mean, a male... Um, a male child. Now stick with me. It's not Ruth who actually needs the kinsman redeemer. She, she's not an Israelite. Naomi needed a kinsman redeemer. But Naomi is way too old to marry and produce an heir for the family. So the only way it's going to work is to have a kinsman redeemer marry Ruth to preserve the family line of her dead husband and sons. Now in the story... As Naomi gets older, she's still out there, you know, Ruth's still out there gleaning the fields. As she's getting older, she realizes, I'm getting older, and Ruth, you're going to get a little bit older. You're going to need to find yourself a husband girl. I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to die. This is a dangerous place for a Moabite woman with no covering. You need to find a husband and a protector. There's one other detail in the story that brings us together, which is there was land, there was an estate that this family had. Elimelech apparently had, was a man of some stature in town, and he had some property, but the property must have fallen into somebody else's hands. There must have been a lien on it or something like that. And so with both of those facts in mind, what Naomi realizes is that, hey, maybe Boaz could be our kinsman redeemer, and it would happen not by marrying me, but by marrying you, Ruth. He could extend the family lines. He could buy back the estate for us. So Naomi and Ruth come up with a plan to ask Boaz 
to fulfill his role as the kinsman redeemer and to do it by marrying Ruth. Now this is a dangerous thing for Boaz to do. I mean, when he marries a Moabite woman, number one, he's not supposed to, and, and, and number two, when you marry the Moabite woman, you get the Moabite family that you have to worry about, too. Has any husbands in here ever married someone? No, forget him. <laughs> and so Ruth goes in, and in an extremely humble act, she, even though she's got to be sure he's going to say, are you crazy? She says, would you marry me? Would you be my kinsman redeemer? And in a world where Boaz could have done what seemed right in his own eyes, he just, I mean, he didn't, let's be honest, folks, okay? I mean, he doesn't need to marry this woman. He could probably do whatever he wanted to with this woman. He decides to marry the Moabite girl, to step up and say yes. But he says there's just one issue, there's actually, Ruth, there's one relative that you haven't met yet, but he's closer to Naomi uh, than I am. And so he kind of has dibs on this whole estate thing. And so he would have to sign off on this before I could, I could be your kinsman redeemer. And so he says, I'll go take care of this. And the scripture says, Boaz goes to this other part of the city and he meets with a guy and, and he says to this guy, Naomi has asked me through Ruth to be this kinsman redeemer and there's this piece of property. I, I would need to purchase it back. And so I need to ask you first, you have first shot at this. In fact, here's what the scripture says. It says, Boaz said to this, this priority guy, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. Good news. Because in that day, women were treated like property, unfortunately. She said, he said, you're not just going to get the property. You're going to get the Moabite chick, the dead man's widow. And you're going to get her in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In, in other words, you're going to have to have a kid with him, too. That'll be part of the responsibilities so that his lineage would go on. You get the property and the woman. All you have to do is have the son. And that comes with it a lot of responsibilities because, well, wait a minute. I, I already have sons. I already have an estate. I don't need any more, and I certainly don't need to marry into a Moabite family. At this time, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. See, this seems right in his own eyes. Why would I do that? That, that makes no sense. You redeem it. I can't do it. And Boaz, an honorable man of substance and wealth and reputation, who recognized the honor in Ruth and Naomi, Boaz marries Ruth. Now the story goes on from here. Ruth and Boaz are married. Boaz fulfills his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer. The land is repurchased. The estate is saved. And even better, now Ruth and Boaz have a son and Naomi's line continues. There's this tender moment right at the end of chapter 4 where Naomi, this woman who at one point had said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, just call me bitter. At one moment, she's now pleasant again, and she's holding her grandson. The scriptures say, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Naomi, 
who had given up on God, Naomi, who was sure that God had abandoned her, Naomi now sits home, her family redeemed, restored, renewed, and that would be a great enough story, but that's not even the end of it. Because the book ends in a real weird way. If you look at the end of chapter 4, all of a sudden there's a lineage there. It's like a little family tree gets drawn. You saw the beginning of it, their boy Obed, right? He had a son named Jesse. And then this Jesse, he goes on and he has a bunch of sons. One of them, in fact the youngest one, winds up being a boy named David. And some of you might know that David would grow up to be the second and greatest king of Israel. The greatest king of Israel comes from the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Bitter. Because she thought God had abandoned her. And so now, some years go by, and this is all captured in that little piece at the end. And Nathan, he comes to David. He's another prophet in Israel. Nathan comes to this David, and he speaks on behalf of God. And he says, David, your house, your house, your lineage, your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne is going to be established forever. Some of you know this becomes a messianic prophecy for all of Israel that God is going to redeem the world, not randomly, but he's going to redeem the world directly from the line of David, who was the son of Jesse, who was the son of Obed, who was the son of Boaz, who was the husband of Ruth, who was the daughter-in-law of Bitter because she didn't think God was at work in her life. And David has a son... And David's son has a son, and 25 begats later, according to the gospel writer Matthew, you can see it right in the beginning of Matthew, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Jesus, son of David, from the city of David, the home of Naomi, who had given up on God, thought he was inactive, uninterested, uninvolved. If you went up to Naomi and you said, hey, Naomi, what's God up to you in your life right now? You know what she would have said? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. He's not doing anything for me or with me. I don't see him anywhere. But the truth was that he hadn't abandoned her. She was not only in the center of his will, she was at the center of his plan for the world, but she didn't see it and she didn't feel it. She thought she was cursed and alone, but she wasn't. God wasn't far. It turns out he was near. God wasn't disinterested. He was engaged. He hadn't forgotten her. He was about to make sure she would be remembered for eternity. Now, here's what I want you to see as I close this out. This is a great story, but there's a piece that I have to show you that is just so cool. How God did this, how God works, the sovereign nature of his plan. Because God has a great plan. You should give him your life. You remember when Naomi and Ruth roll into town? And Naomi explains to Ruth, this is how it works here in Israel. They've got to leave some barley out, so you go out and glean in a field. Just, and she just tells them, go head out and, and find a field. And so Ruth goes out. Here's how the scripture records it. It says, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just so happened. I mean, as it turned out. 
As it turned out, listen to guys, this is so amazing. As it turned out is a literary device used by the author. It's the only place you're going to find it in the Old Testament where it's almost as if he's winking and going, well, as it turned out. Other versions translate it this way. I love this. It just so happened. Literally, look it up. It just so happened. It just so happened that Ruth winds up in Boaz's field. It's like, do you see, the, the, the writer's going, do you see this? You see it again when Boaz goes to look for the other relative who had first dibs on Ruth and the estate? Here's what the writer says. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. What are the chances? <laughs> Meanwhile, it just so happened. It just so happened that the right guy at the right time came by. Think of this story. This is a story about the sovereignty of God and how he works in your life. It just so happened that Ruth decided to move back from Bethlehem to, from Moab to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. It just so happened. I mean, it just so happened that Ruth wandered into Boaz's field. It just so happened that the day Ruth wandered into Boaz's field, that Boaz showed up at that field that day. It just so happened that Boaz happened to be a man of great character, strength, means, and single. <laughs> just so happened. See, this, what the writer is trying to say is this isn't happenstance. It isn't circumstance or fortune or chance. This is the providence of God. It is the theme of the book. Sometimes God works through the visible hand of miracles in our lives, but most of the time God is working in your life in the invisible hand of his providence. Here, what it looks like from the human perspective is this. A hungry, homeless, broke girl goes out, looks at a bunch of fields and says, I think I'll just glean in this one. And she makes a free will choice to go to that field. No angel spoke to her. There was no miracle. You don't see a burning bush or a sea parting. She just goes, I, I guess I'll go to that one. Have you ever stopped to look at the just, it just so happened moments in your life where God is sovereign and working and his plan is at work and it just, I mean, it just, it just, it's like for me, I started thinking about it. It just so happened like I, I needed a job in the summer of 1985, and so I was in love with this girl, and so she had a job at a restaurant, so it just so happened that she said, you should come work here. I mean, it just so happened. And so it just so happened that she worked there about a week and quit because it was hard, and it just so happened that I was making a lot of money, so I stayed. Just so happened I met another girl there. It happened to come from a Christian family. And it just so happened that we got married. <laughs> just so happened that I really felt like God wanted me to be a pastor, but... I thought that seemed kind of like a nerdy thing to do, so I decided I wasn't going to do that because that seemed right in my own eyes. Just so happened, though, that when I was off working in the bank, one day I was sitting at my desk and this guy comes up to me that I'd never met before and he says, you know, I've heard about you. We're starting a new, uh, a new unit in the bank. It's only before people it's going to be investing in private equity with the bank's money. Would you like to join us? A job I was totally unqualified for. Just so happened. So I took that job and it just so happened that the bank got sold and we got sold and it just so happened that the next bank got sold and we got sold and it just so happened that the next bank got sold and we got sold and it just so happened that the last time that happened, we, uh, not even me, a guy I worked with had a connection and he was able to raise $10 million to buy all the assets we had invested in. It just so happened. And so it just so happened that 
we didn't have any more money to invest in any assets, so I just had a lot of time on my hands. Now, see, what i got to bring you back to is it just so happened that when I met the, the girl and I married her, we were looking for a church, and it just so happened I was on a golf course one day, and a guy walked by, and he was wearing a Christian T-shirt. It just so happened. And so I went up and said, you know, I'm looking for a church. Where do you go to church? He goes, you should try this church, Menham Hills Community Church. And so it just so happened that 20 years later, I had a lot of time on my hands, and, and some of the leaders here at Menham said, well, you know, you're not working all that hard at work. Why don't you come work here for a little bit? And I said, it just, okay, I mean, I'll try it. It just so happened. It just so happened that I am the pastor of this church, and I didn't even want to be. It just <laughs> so happened. This is the provident hand of God at work in our lives. I think most of the time we're looking for all these huge miraculous things in our lives. It, it, it's if we, these moments are all around us. Have you looked for the, it just so happened moments in your life? You can see them if you look back. A lot of times we get to walk by faith, but man, when you look back and you go, oh, it just so happened and happened and happened at one point where you trust and believe and walk. Einstein has a quote attributed to him. I don't know if it's from him, but it's a good quote. Here's what he said. There are only two ways to live your life, as though nothing is a miracle or as though everything is a miracle. God is sovereign. He is in control. God has a wonderful plan. You really should give him your life. Even when your life might seem out of control, God is about his work. He has a wonderful plan. Some of you, maybe this morning, you might be right on the edge of just giving this whole thing up. Right on the edge, like Naomi, you're going, just, you know what, just call me bitter. Not Bill, bitter. Some of you are looking around and you're like Elimelech or Orpah, and you're getting close to saying, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to do what seems right in my own eyes. I'm out here trying to wait for God's person for me to marry. Keep trying to live a life of purity and honor God. Why am I doing this? I don't see anything happening. Maybe you're in a marriage and the marriage is tough. Your friends are just whispering in your ear, why do you stay with her? Why do you stay with them? Maybe you're at work and you're just watching everybody do all kinds of stuff that, you know, is stuff that you know that wouldn't be the will of God for you, but you start to go after, well, maybe I should just do what seems to be right in everybody else's eyes. Forget the whole God thing. It's not working out. The story of Ruth is that it is just at that moment where you might be at the center of his will and his plan, not just for your life, but the center of history, an epic move. The story of Ruth is don't go back or give up or give in. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. Do you know why? You are a moment away from it just so happened. Ben, come on up. Ruth? is this young girl. It would have been right in everybody's eyes just to go back. But she decided she was going to live for the purposes and call of God and do what was right. She was faithful and loyal. She chose the things that to her people and her culture would have seemed crazy. And she finds herself at the center of history. And you just might so too. Start looking for these. You will find them all over. I really believe that God has a great plan, and if you would give him your life, you will find it just so happens happening everywhere. You know why? 
because after all, it just so happened. The sovereign hand of God.